I've been thinking a lot of the image of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter three. I think I've been thinking a lot of them because in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has concentrated on the difference between the human high priesthood and that of our great high priest, our perfect high priest. And in the vision, it, it, the Joshua, the high priest, is shown in filthy clothes. That's all it says, is that you have the high priest and his clothes are filthy, not the image that you get from the high priest. This is not how he dressed when he went to work. He was clothed completely in white, but in this particular case, Joshua's clothes are filthy. And Satan stands at his right hand, at his, at his seat of power, if you will, and he accuses him. We're not told what he's accused of. Uh, we're not told uh, whether or not he's guilty. All we're told is how he's dressed and that Satan is there. And what's interesting is the only action that takes place is all of a sudden the voice comes from heaven, God saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. That's all. That's the action in the vision. You think you know this child of mine? You think you know? I mean, whatever he's accusing him of, is it true? Well, the only indication that we have is that his clothes are filthy. So yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. Whatever it is. But God's saying in, in, in those words, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You know, and, and to me, that's what he's saying. You think you know this child? All you can see is the outside, that's all. And yes, he's filthy on the outside. Yes, even the high priest was a what? Was a sinner. And he needed a sacrifice just for him on the Day of Atonement. There was a sacrifice that he had to do just for himself and his family on the Day of Atonement. So in a way, Satan's standing there saying, this is, this is the guy? This is the holiest guy on, on the whole planet? This is the one that represents you? And God says, you think you know him? I know him. I know his heart, not just his clothes. I know his heart. And guess what? I'm the one that put him in that position. And then the call goes out. It says, dress him. So all of a sudden, an angel comes down. His filthy clothes are taken away. And, and good, clean clothes, completely spotless clothes are put on him. And he says, I have taken your guilt away from you. This is the action in there. So it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like that's what the author of Hebrews has been trying to get across to us for 13, 12 chapters now, as we are in 13 today, to conclude? It should sound familiar because that's how it ended last week. Remember, this is where, I, where we left off. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are all enrolled in heaven, and to, the, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, what? Made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow. I had Arlene uh, hit it to us from Paul in Ephesians. How are we made perfect? The author of Hebrews told us. How were we made right before God? The blood of his sacrifice, also the perfect, uh, his perfect righteousness interceding for us and giving it to us. Do you dare to believe that the gospel is really as good as it sounds? Do you dare to believe that not only have you been atoned for, you've been purified, you've been made right, all because of him, with no room for what? No room for boasting. No room for boasting. God makes us right. It needs, we need to believe that. It needs to be faithed. We need to faith that, is, is, is what Paul says. So it presents a problem whenever we come across this. It presents a problem for a preacher who preaches it, believe me. Because most of the congregations that I preach to, there's always a group, a lot of us, who has a little bit of a problem with that. Because I talk about it a lot, don't I? 
Some might say that's all I talk about. I had a church once where uh, one of my dear sisters, uh, she said that she said it. I know it was directed at me, but she kind of, uh, as as with her other <laughs> dealings with me, kind of threw it over my shoulder. But you know, it, 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 she made sure that I heard it. You know, these pastors come out of seminary today. All they talk about is love, 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 grace, grace, grace. And I said, hmm, thank you. And if you knew who that was coming from, that might have been the greatest compliment I had ever received in my ministry. But that's hard to believe. It's hard for people to hear. It's hard for the good people to hear. Not hard for sinners to hear. If you really are a sinner, that's the best news you could ever receive, right? If you really are a sinner. But these Hebrews, these Adventists, See, Paul lays out righteousness by faith in Romans 3. I, I, I know I'm concluding today, so I needed to pull it in from everywhere. Pull it in from Ephesians. Pull it in from Romans. Uh, add it to Hebrews. Just one big, huge pot boiling over with righteousness by faith. Are, are we okay with that today? But in, in, in Romans 3, when he lays out righteousness by faith, it begins in half the chapter. Because if you remember, Romans 2 and half of Romans 3 are all, is all the bad news. It's why all the Gentiles are condemned before God. All, all the Jewish believers are condemned before God. Believers, non-believers, all stand condemned before God. And then in the middle, in the middle of chapter 3, it says, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he goes on for three verses to tell you how it's revealed. And it's revealed only in the blood of our atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ. For by grace we have been saved. And he lays it all completely out that, that there is no righteousness outside of this blood. There is no righteousness outside of this high priest. And then he concludes, and this is how he concludes in chapter three. He says, then what becomes of boasting? You see, every time that Paul had to preach to any congregation and he brings up righteousness by faith, notice what he has to address afterwards. What becomes of what? Boasting. Because he knows where he comes from. He spent his entire career, if you will, or his entire spiritual life as a Pharisee, perfect under the law. He spent his entire career before he met Jesus boasting of his righteousness because he had a reason to boast of his righteousness. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as unto the law, perfect. So he does have to bring this up because when he does preach and give the perfect righteousness that he comes, he knows that there are still boasters out there. He knew Hebrews. He knew Adventists, didn't he? For we hold that a person is justified, justified, remember, ratified, made right, not just looked at and pronounced not guilty, but truly made right in the eyes of God. By faith apart from what? Apart from works. Prescribed by the law. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Remember? A new covenant, if you will. Or is the God a God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We fulfill it by believing that we are righteous by faith and not by works of the law. Verse 28 is amazing, actually. Go back to that. For we hold that a person is made right by faith, not by works prescribed by the law. Paul didn't believe that as a Pharisee. He believed what made him right was the resume. That's what made him right. 
Author of Hebrews says the resume doesn't matter. Author of Hebrews says that if you have faith, I'll put you in the hall of faith. And you can go in there with all kinds of people that have all kinds of resumes, bad and good. Because what gets you in the hall is believing that you're made right by this high priest. So these Hebrews who've been invested in the law as their righteousness, the tabernacle system and the priesthood was all prescribed where? It was all prescribed from the law. Exodus, Leviticus, practiced in Numbers, Deuteronomy, the temples built in 1 Kings. It's rebuilt in, in Nehemiah and Ezra. The whole thing is prescribed by what? <laughs> down to what it's decorated with, down to its colors, down to its exact square footage is prescribed where? It's prescribed in the law. So writing to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is telling them that there's a better way than this. See, I wouldn't have dared write that. See, that's how I know that the gospel is not a human concoction. Because even you and me, no matter how well we uh, believe we know what righteousness by faith really is, if we had to come up with it, we never would have been able to come up with it. The best we would have been able to do is, is say, you know what, you at least have to take a few steps. You gotta take a few steps in God's direction before he's gonna dump all this on you, okay? You need to do a little good. We need to see a little good. You need to be sorry before you can be forgiven. That's the best we could do, right? Not Paul. Not for the author of Hebrews. But he knows that we're out there. He knows that there are those of us of what we may say about this, this awesome, amazing, everlasting, all-encompassing grace by which we are saved. And in Romans 6, he puts it this way. Sorry. Oops. In Romans 6, he says, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? See, that's what you're waiting for for me, Right? Adventists will let you preach about righteousness by faith all day as long as you conclude the way they want you to conclude and that is, please, please, pastor, start talking about some works or people are gonna walk around still sinning thinking they're in grace. That's Adventism's greatest fear, isn't it? That's our greatest fear is that somebody may be getting away with something that we weren't allowed to get away with. So the author of Hebrews knows exactly who he's talking to. Because after teaching this about all of this, after teaching, I keep hitting the wrong button. <laughs> after teaching about this high priest who is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being, the one who can sustain all things, your righteousness, his righteousness, by the way, when he made purification for sins, a total purification for sins, how many times did he have to be sacrificed? Once, once for all for eternity, once for yesterday, once for today, and once for tomorrow. And he right now is sitting at the right hand of the majesty of God, superior to all angels, inherited a more excellent name than all of them. The author of Hebrews knows that he's got to be, start talking about some works or he's going to lose his audience. And that's how he concludes. My week ran by me as most of my weeks do without me even recognizing that it got by me. I was going to ask Grady, when we taught this part in Hebrews, <laughs> didn't you hear a sigh of relief in the room, right? We finally are going to start talking about what you are allowed and what you're not allowed to do if you are completely righteous in Christ. So let's start. Notice where he starts. Let mutual what? Let mutual love what? 
Continue, I'm quoting from the New Revised Standard. The reason I like the New Revised Standard version is because it uses what we call gender-inclusive language. Your version probably says, let brotherly love continue. Let's love brothers. The NIV actually says brothers and sisters. The NRSV just says, let mutual love. Because is the mutual love only supposed to be for brothers? Is it only supposed to be between men? No, right? So let mutual love continue. It's interesting to me that it begins here, okay? It means that everything we are called and carry out to do is immersed and rooted in a mutual love for each other. We begin there or the church does not move forward with mission. Are you with me? And by the way, in all of its grand uh, prescription from the author of Hebrews, the only thing that it tells the church is this. This is it. This is all. Let mutual love what? Continue. I'm happy that he, that the author believes that it already exists, right? Some churches need to go one step back, right? Fall in love with each other first and then let it what? And let it continue. But when it comes uh, to prescribe the way that we are to treat each other, that's it right there. This is where it starts. So if we allow our mutual love for each other to continue, then some things begin to happen. Some things happen. It says don't neglect to show hospitality to who? To strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Note the love for each other. Something happens when we begin to love each other, when we continue to love each other. It begins to spill outside these doors, doesn't it? Or maybe if, if strangers wander in the doors, we're supposed to show what to them? Hospitality. Our love should be seen in our hospitality, amen? So if they come in the doors, great, but if they don't, then we go, right? Go ye therefore and show hospitality. To who? To strangers. How easy is that to do? Not easy at all. Actually, there are some people who have the spiritual gift of hospitality. For them, it's very easy. And I wish more of them would step up and lead ministries. Because it isn't easy to do. You can show hospitality to each other. And sometimes showing hospitality to each other has just a little bit of selfishness to it because we, we do definitely want to outdo the other, don't we? But to strangers, that comes from somewhere else, doesn't it? It has to come from somewhere beyond some sort of selfish motive, right? Because it's the first step that we take towards a stranger is to show them hospitality. It's interesting, I think the author of Hebrews knows this a little too well too. Because what's a shame about this is that we have to be enticed to show hospitality to another human being, okay? By entertaining the notion that he may not even be human. It's a dig, isn't it? Didn't you get that, Miriam? I just saw it land on Miriam. It landed on me. We have to actually be enticed because don't worry, that human that you don't want to show hospitality to, he may not be human. Hospitality is strangers. Love begins to flow. Yes, grace affects our actions. And the first people that should be the beneficiaries of our actions are who? Strangers. Next, who are the beneficiaries? Remember those who are in prison. As though you were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured as though yourselves are being tortured. Notice, it says not just remembering that someone's in prison. Gail reminds us because we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that Tim is in prison, don't we? 
So we need to be reminded. But it says here, don't just remember that he's in prison, actually empathize as if you were the one in prison. Empathize as you were the one being tortured. The only way that you can do that, the absolutely only way that you can do that would be to contact a prisoner. Listen to the prisoner's story. Listen to what it feels like. Let them tell you your story. I'm saying here, we're not all gifted for prison ministry. I'm not that particularly gifted for prison ministry, but it came with the job. I've gotten better at it, but I don't believe that I'm gifted. If you're not gifted for prison ministry, you don't have to go to prison. You just have to empathize with a prisoner. And the only way that you can do that is to get in contact with them. Talk to them. Let them tell you their story. And then you not just remember that they're in prison. You just don't remember to pray for them. You actually then feel for them. And then maybe soon that when we see pictures of prisoners on TV, we begin to think differently. We begin to look differently. It has to happen in here. See, I, told, I said this before when Grady, uh, when, I, when I asked, uh, when Grady finally got to this verse in Sabbath school, there had to be a, 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 a breath of relief. Oh, good. We get to pick on some sinners now. Whew. You picked on me long enough. Okay, I understand I don't have empathy for prisoners. I understand I have trouble showing hospitality to strangers. I understand my love for you may not be mutual. But now we get to pick on fornicators and adulterers. That's what I'm here for. Let marriage be held in what? In honor by all. And let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge who? Fornicators and adulterers. Yes, big, huge surprise. People who are covered in the righteousness of Christ have a certain sexual ethic, don't they? And they will be what? They will be judged. See, but when we breathe a sigh of relief in the church and we think that we are going to go after them or call them out as the author of Hebrews just did, there's something we need to remember about the adulterer and the fornicator is that they're first of all to be approached with what? That mutual love, that pesky mutual love all the way back in verse one. Oh, why did he start there? Did he say, quit loving the fornicator and the adulterer, then approach them? No. And what kind of love should it be? It actually should be a love of empathy, the same empathy that we should be able to bring up for prisoners and strangers. And the reason that we empathize with another sinner is because we're what? We're sinners. Our problem is we look at the F and the A in these and we think that those are bigger sins. I have to tell you right now, according to our church manual, those are bigger sins. These are one of the three that you're allowed or we're allowed to discipline people for. But are they? What kind of understanding are we supposed to have when we approach them about their adultery? How do we treat people within the adultery? Do we understand that yes, God will judge them as he judges all what? All sin. So just because I'm not one of those means I've escaped God's judgment? No. And by the way, we remember our high priest. He preached a lot about this, didn't he? He upheld the, that commandment, didn't he? He upheld it. He talked about it all the time. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, yeah, now Jesus began to meddle a little bit, didn't he? If you simply lust after someone, you've committed adultery where? Which may be more important than the other kind. 
Because the one problem with adultery in the heart is that the adulterer doesn't believe it's adultery. But what I remember is how he treated her. That's what I remember. When that adulterer caught in the act was brought out and thrown at this high priest's feet. That's what I remember. She's being condemned. Condemned by who, by the way? By the world? World didn't have a problem with her being a prostitute, right? She's condemned by who? Condemned by the church. Condemned by the church. And by the way, the issue wasn't even her adultery, was it? They were doing it to catch him. They wanted to see if he actually would follow the law. Because they'd seen him break enough laws now up until now that, that they need to see this. And they're going to decide based on what he does on how, what they're going to do with him, how they're going to deal with him. You can't be of God and break his law. And he's violated God's law several times up until now. The law says adulterers need to be what? Stoned. They're not even concerned with this adulterer. This doesn't even have anything to do with her. By the way, where's the man? Law says he was supposed to be stoned too. It's not even about her. Their punishment is not redemptive. They don't give a rip about her. They want to catch him in a heresy. So the adulterer comes out condemned by the church, but the high priest stands, covers her shame, begins to call out their own sins publicly, and then what? Privately, by writing them in the sand, and then lifts her death sentence. Because one by one, those who know that they are sinners who approached this adulterer not in the spirit of the law or in the spirit of love. They know they have no leg to stand on and they drop their stones and they what? And they walk away. So the church are human beings who live with that son of man's high priest spirit in us. Amen? So I'm here to tell you, church, to tell us, we either condemn the fornicator and the adulterer, or we free them, we can't do both. You with me? We can condemn the fornicator and the adulterer. We have biblical authority to do so. We have the law on our side. We have our church manual on our side. We can do that. But in order to free the adulterer, like our high priest, in order to live with his spirit in us, we have to free her. We can't do both. We're either one or we're the other. We either condemn or we commend. We either enslave or we free. So I think that that's what the rest of this is about. Because the author of Hebrews knows once he mentioned fornicators and adulterers, that set off a bell with all of us and we began to head down our self-righteous path. And he wanted to remind us, okay, hold on. And I think that's what this is about next. It says, make sure then that your characters is free from, from the love of what? The love of money, <laughs> being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In other words, if you have a love of money, we're using our money to, to buy our security, amen? That's, that's how we're secure in this world. But he said, if, you, if that's what you're relying on, if that's all you're relying on for security in this world, then you're not, you're, you're not acting in what? You're not acting in faith. He says, I won't desert you. I won't forsake you. 
so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what, and I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Now hang on a second, there's nothing wrong with money. You with me? There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with seeking it. There's nothing wrong with spending it. Just don't what? Love it. When it comes to rely on something, rely on who? Rely on God. The richest man that I ever knew personally, I mean personally, he's the richest man I ever knew. I know a lot of rich people. I know who they are, I don't know them, okay? This one was my friend. He's the richest person I ever met. He had money coming out of his ears. But I also know this, that he loved Jesus so much that if Jesus ever said, I need you to give it all up, he would have done it like that. See, but I don't think that this really has anything to do with money. What it has to do with is if you wanna go after the adulterer and the fornicator, Maybe you'll have your bank statements written in the sand first. How do you hold up then? What is my money and how I manage it and what I do with it? How does it look as I self-righteously approach the adulterer and the fornicator? Isn't that what Jesus was doing when he was writing it in the sand? I'm sure he wrote a couple of bank statements there in the sand, right? And one of them, in one of the bank statements, there was a receipt from Mary paying her for what she had done that they drug her out of that bed and hotel room for. So if we're willing to go after sinners, I, I don't want the results or, or, or the actual results, if you ask me if I'm in love with my money, I don't want that projected up here. So guess what else he attacks before we can go after the fornicator and the adulterer? Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. For it is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by regulations about what? Food. Oh. I just heard a bunch of bellies drop right there. Food which has not, actually, not by regulations about food which have not benefited those who observe them. He goes after the food regulators too. If we've placed a regulation of food as our standard of judgment, if it elevates us above others to where we think we can go after the big sinners, if you will, okay, allowing us to condemn others, then maybe this will be written in the sand too. I know. I had a couple of members of my church who considered themselves shopping cart saints. There was one man that I baptized and he confided in me and he was able to just laugh it off. But every time he ran, he seemed to always, after he was baptized, run into this one particular church member in the grocery store. And there, she could not keep her eyes locked with him while talking to him. She's staring in his grocery cart. But notice what he says here. Now, the author of Hebrews, I think, is getting at something, it's, it's, and, and it may irritate us just a little bit, and I, and I don't want to spend too much time on here, because I, I know you know I enjoy irritating these people, but um, <laughs> what he's saying is, is that there isn't anything spiritual about a particular food regulation. It doesn't benefit your what? Now, are there certain foods and regulations that can benefit your heart? 
Yeah, but he's talking, uh, we would be talking about the physical heart. He, he, he doesn't have any sort of clue about that, right? All he knows is that a certain food has been banned, if you will, and they're claiming that that uh, allows them to be more spiritual, that their food is a spiritual boost. And he's saying that's not true at all. Because if you're counting on food to elevate your spirituality or strengthen your heart, we've got it all wrong. Because our heart should only be strengthened by what? By grace. That's what he's saying. It is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by regulations about food. I'm not discounting the fact that being healthy can be an act of worship. But the problem with that is that we make the, the health the act of worship. And when we do that, notice, it doesn't benefit us at all, does it? Author of Hebrews says, they do it, but it doesn't what? But it doesn't benefit them. Foods aren't heart strengtheners. Only grace is. And he's not talking about our coronary arteries. Get it? Author of Hebrews had no idea what a coronary artery was and had no idea what foods could do to those arteries. Are you with me? <laughs> what he's saying is the regulation does not strengthen the heart. For him, the heart was, was the human being. It was the human spirit. It was the human emotion. It was all that we could do to, to, to offer God. That's what he's talking about. Food doesn't feed the heart. And I know he's, what he means because he goes on by saying, we have an altar from which those who officiate in the tent have what? No right to eat. Now he's talking about spiritual food. He's moved from, from the kitchen table or the dining room table. He's now moved to, to God's table, if you will, in the sanctuary. We all know that the priests were allowed to eat of certain sacrifices, right? They were allowed to eat not just what was left over, but they were allowed to eat. But there was food that they were not absolutely allowed to eat. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Our high priest has seen it fit that we eat of meat that not even the priests were allowed to eat of. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin and are what? burned outside the camp. The only body of sacrifice that was burned outside the camp was that bull on the Day of Atonement. It's the only uh, complete uh, sacrifice, if you will, that the high priest performed himself. He brings the blood inside to be forgiven, to forgive his sins, and to forgive his family's sins. And then when the ceremony was completely over, he took that body and he took it outside the camp and he burned it, along with his clothes, by the way. Do you get what the author of Hebrews is saying? There is food that the priests weren't allowed to eat. And because of our high priest, we get to eat of it. He's talking about spiritual food now, isn't he? He's not talking about heart-healthy food. And he says, and that's why Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to cleanse, if you will, sanctify, make holy, perfect the people by his what? By his own blood. The sacrifice was done inside for the priest. This high priest sacrifices himself outside to make sure who benefits? Everyone. Us. We weren't priests. We weren't on the inside. By the way, this is the author of Hebrews' final word on the sanctuary system. This is it. This is where he concludes and says this is why Jesus was, was sacrificed on the outside of the city, outside the gates. Was it so that sacrifice could be for Everyone. It's his blood that forgives. It's his blood that purifies. It's his blood that perfects us. Nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. We don't boast in not being fornicators or adulterers. 
That's not what we boast in. We don't boast in being happy givers. We don't boast because we eat the diet of Eden. We boast only in the blood of Christ. And note this, I'll, I'll skip ahead to the benediction. Let us go then to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he what? Bear the abuse he endured. To bear his abuse. We don't just go after sinners. We go out to do what he did, to bear his abuse. Now I told you before, we might be called to be martyred, but I doubt we will. We're not, we won't be called to be martyred if we will. Uh, we might, we might be called to be martyred. We might be called even to be crucified. Peter was, right? But think of the abuse that Jesus suffered. And I believe that this is the abuse we are to. This is the martyrdom that we are to give. Going all the way back to the mutual love, this is what I believe we will be martyred with. This is the abuse. Is that when he was alive, when he treated that adulteress the way that he treated her, when he treated the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the thieves, the way that he did, he, he wasn't extolled for that. He was not praised for that. He did not have a good reputation for that. In fact, they scoffed at him and said, this guy can't be of God. If that's the crowd that he extols, if that's the crowd that he offers the kingdom of heaven, then we can't have anything to do with him. By the way, according to them, he was the son of a fornicator and an adulterer, right? You guys weren't even married yet. And Mary showed up pregnant. We know what happened in that household. That followed him all his life. He martyred his reputation in order to love the unloved. He healed people that God had obviously judged long ago. He turned Sabbath keeping into a joke, a lax, lazy, free-for-all. That he would break the law just, to, just so his disciples could eat? That can't be a Messiah of God. What if that's the abuse we are to bear? Allow those that call themselves Christians to condemn those that, that they feel aren't. Why? Because we're loving the unloved. We're welcoming the unloved. We're giving them a place. We're treating them the way that our high priest would treat them. We're doing for them what he did for us. We can either kick out all of the fornicators and adulterers and mock and abuse them as other Christians would do, or we could welcome them. We can give them the only thing that we got, our fellowship, a place in the body of Christ, the only thing that we can boast of, his grace that saves, and the only thing that we're allowed to boast of. That's why I think that he ends it this way. I jump ahead to the uh, end of the letter, the, the benediction of the letter. Oops. I don't have it. I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for it. But in verse 20, it says this. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. He calls Jesus, he doesn't call him his high priest anymore, he calls him our shepherd. In fact, he calls him the great shepherd. And what did Jesus say the good shepherd does back in John 10? He's one who lays down his life for the sheep. Yes, again, martyr, but also what? Also reputation. Also good standing. So that's what I'm, what I'm saying is he treats, he, he, he treats us as we, as we truly are. Sheep without a shepherd. Lost. Needing the shepherd for our very lives. Needing the shepherd for anything. So now that we are under the care of this good, uh, great shepherd, will we as shepherds take care of his lambs?
See, the church, the mainstream church or the church that gets the, all the attention of today, they look at churches that are willing to do that and they say, oh, they're just not, they're not willing to call sin a sin. They say, we call sin a sin. We condemn when we need to condemn. We call out our fornicators on adulterers. It's not what the shepherd does. Some people even think that David was the apple of God's eye because he was a man of violence. Because he took what he was supposed to take. Because he defeated all of his enemies. And I told you before, I've shared with you before, the only thing that made David the apple of God's eye was that when he treated people like who he really was, and he was a shepherd. When he treated people like he was a shepherd and not the warrior king that the people expected him to be, that's when he was the apple of God's eye. By the way, when he committed his, his worst offense of, of the warrior king, when he takes that one lamb from the poor man, when he takes Bathsheba and rapes her and then kills her husband to cover it up, Nathan even uses the analogy of the shepherd in order to be able to call him out on that. He says that there was a poor man and he had only one lamb. And when he gets done with that, David is furious. And when he gets furious, Nathan is then able to say what? You're the man. David realized Bathsheba was his lamb. Uriah was his lamb. I think of that poor lamb in John 9 just before we're told about the good shepherd in John 10. The man born blind, one that the church would only use as an object lesson. Who sinned that this man was born blind? His parents or him? He was just used as a theological object lesson. Every day, a school of rabbis and rab rabbinic students would show up and, and, and debate as to who was the bigger sinner, the parents or him. And then after that, just walk away. And one day there was a voice. One day there was a voice of a shepherd. I said, would you like to see? Because even our shepherds, rabbinic students, asked the same question. And he heard a voice he never heard before. You know who sinned that this man was born blind? Nobody. Neither his parents nor him. He was born blind for this day. He was born blind so me, his good shepherd, could protect him from the wolves and do something that, that, that only he can do. Give him his grace, give him his love, give him his healing, give him his sight. So as I said, we could call out the sinners we can drive them from our midst. The big ones, you know, the big ones. We can be afraid of those that will call us for being lax, that call us for, for not calling a sin a sin. We can, we, we, we can uh, uh, you know, listen to those voices. But it isn't us, is it? Grace in the desert, is it us? It isn't, is it? This is our geography, but this is not our kingdom. We got no lasting city here, but we're looking for the city that is to what? That is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have with such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's the sacrifice that we begin to offer. He sacrificed all, we sacrifice for others. Our good deeds are our sacrifice. Please, yes, please, do good deeds. Get better at it. Get better at loving. Get better at welcoming the stranger. Get better at treating the fornicator and the adulterer. Get better at opening the doors to anybody. Get better at it, please. Just don't boast about it. Just don't think 
that it buys us any credit, if you will, with the one who actually came to us bankrupt, no credit, and gave us all his credit. Like I said, sometimes that's all we have is our fellowship, is our sense to allow someone to belong. That's all we've got, right? So that's us. That's us. I don't know where I'm at now. Be the God of peace who brought us back from the dead. Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant make you complete in everything good so that you may be well in working among us, which is his pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. That's how he ends the letter for us. Will we do this? Do it. We just can't boast that it's our righteousness. It can't interfere with our mutual love. His perfection clarifies what love really is and how far it will go. And so today we look at the fornicator, the adulterer, we look at us, we look at every sin and we hear the voice and we should be able to say with him, who has condemned you? And the answer is what? No one, neither do I. And the only thing I would change is that he said go and sin no more. What we do is we change. We say, okay, well then come and sin no more. But when you do, when you do, you have an advocate, Christ Jesus. And you have us as your advocate. We will stand up for you. I received this once and and I'll just add this here. It says, a redemptive community, which is the true bride, looks at the pain, the hurt, and the ugliness caused by evil and says to someone, you've come to the right place. We know what to do. You can be part of a family that never ends. The bond can start with me. If you will have my God be your God, then my people will be your people. And together we will fear no evil. For God is with us. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. It's been quite a ride. Thank you for riding it with me.